Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. For our last show of summer, something a little different. The hosts of three of my favorite art podcasts. First, we'll hear from James Cuno, the host of Art and Ideas, the Getty's new top-line podcast. Cuno is the president of the J. Paul Getty Trust. Then I'll talk to Brian Alford, the host of Sound and Vision, which features both artists and musicians. Alfred is a New York-based painter who is exhibited widely in the United States, Europe, and Asia. Finally, Eric Marth, who hosts The Halftone, a program about photography. Marth is himself a Virginia-based photographer. Over on manpodcast.com, we'll have links to all of their shows and links to the various ways you can subscribe to them. One thing before we get into the conversations. I'm a white guy, and this show is me speaking with three other white guys. Like so much of media and art media in particular, this space is not representative of artistic or art historical production, let alone what America or the international art world looks like. Here's hoping that changes, and soon. Jim Cuno's up first, after the break. I'm thrilled to announce that next month, the Modern Art Notes podcast will be recording its first-ever live audience program in Washington, D.C., Please join me at the Hirshhorn Museum and Sculpture Garden on September 10th at 2 p.m. as I talk with Hamish Fulton. Since 1972, Fulton has only made artworks based on the experience of walks, walks through countryside, cities, wherever. These walks, which expanded in 1994 to include group walks, have informed photography, illustration, wall text, and more. Fulton's work is in the Hirshhorn Collection and is now featured in a major survey at the Tate Britain. Conceptual Art in Britain, 1964 to 1979. Please join Hamish Fulton and me for free at the Hirshhorn on September 10th at 2 p.m. Hope to see you there. Blaffer Art Museum presents the first major U.S. museum exhibition for Matthew Ronay, June 4th through October 1st. Although Ronay has a form of colorblindness, his handcrafted sculptures, installations, and reliefs combine vivid hues from across the spectrum that seem to vibrate and hum. From June 4th through September 10th, Hilary Lloyd presents video installations, objects, and architectural interventions created specifically for Blaffer's galleries. More at blafferartmuseum.org. The Getty's Summer Book Sale is happening now. From a peek into the life of Cezanne through his personal letters, to an examination of L.A.'s modern architecture, to delightful children's books, beautifully illustrated exhibition catalogs, and scholarly art historical publications, there's something for the artist and everyone. Get 50% off selected titles through October 2nd at shop.getty.edu. And we're back. Jim Cuno, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thanks, Tyler. It's great, great to be here. Great to be with you. You run a multi-billion dollar institution. Why do you want to podcast? Well, I'll tell you about the sort of origin of this whole this whole thing, and, and it was about a year ago, driving with my older daughter and her baby, my grandson, uh, from Vermont to New York City, and she introduced me to Serial, the podcast. I, I found it compelling, the kind of storytelling aspect of it, but also the intimacy of it, even as a highly produced podcast as Serial is. But that led me into the whole thing about podcasts. So. I began to explore the possibilities, and I came across all these New Yorker podcasts, and one of them, uh, New Yorker Fiction Podcast, happens to be done by a friend of mine, Deborah Treisman, who's the fiction editor of the New Yorker. So I got onto that, and then I began to explore BBC podcasts and various things, and I fell in love with 
two aspects of podcasting. One is the cure, the ability to curate one's own experience. In other words, someone wasn't obliged to whatever it was on the radio that one had to listen to, but one could actually pick and choose among things. But secondly, the intimacy of the conversation on podcast. What I liked more than I liked about Serial, what I liked about the podcast that I was listening to now, The New Yorker and BBC and so on, was this kind of, I was eavesdropping on a very interesting conversation that two or three people were having about something. So it was that kind of informality and and conversational aspect of things that attracted me to it. So then I thought, well, uh, I'm in a, an extraordinary position at the Getty to be in conversation with a lot of interesting people much of the time. So I bet you other people, I thought, would be interested in hearing some of these conversations. So why don't we just do it and see what happens? And so that's how it started. And we got started doing it about four or five months after I first listened to a podcast. And we launched about five months after that, so very recently. I'm having a blast. I think that that for years or even even really for generations that museums long decided that wall text was the best way to communicate with their audiences about what they do and what, what, what their staffs found in art, what their research revealed and so forth. Of course, there were sometimes monthly newsletters too. They, they were fine. Was there a point that you, whether it was in Chicago or now that you're in L.A., realized that those things weren't necessarily sufficient or didn't allow institutional interest or talent a full range of opportunities to to share what was going on and, and what was of interest? Well, as you know, there are spatial limitations on, on labels in gallery spaces, either labels attached to paintings or just labels introducing the theme of the gallery itself or something. And so, so one can only say so much. One has to pick and choose about what it is that one says. And one has a multiple, multiple, uh, multiplicity of audiences or audience interests, and the wall, the wall text will only attend to one or two of those interests. Those interests, and so there's someone's missing a lot. So there ought to be different levels of engagement with an audience, and we have various ways of doing that digitally. But I thought that the backstory was as interesting as the front story. That is. In the process of an exhibition, what are the choices that one makes? What are the so if you get in conversation with curators who are putting together an exhibition, people might be interested in that. If you're in conversation with someone who's written a book about something and you talk to them about what it is they intended by the book or how it is they structured the book or what issues they had to confront in the process of writing the book, people might be interested in that. So I just think it deepens the experience. There are multiple layers of experiences that people can have with regard to works of art and museums, and we ought to exploit from the curatorial perspective, as many of those issues as possible. And you can get guests. Helen Molesworth only did, as I understand it, two interviews related to her Black Mountain College show, and one of them was with you. So that's an interesting description because it seems to me large nonprofits, whether their missions revolve around art collections or land stewardship or whatever, are increasingly taking on media functions doing everything from from podcasts to to digital newspapers and magazines is that something that you've consciously tried to steer the getty toward or has it just kind of been an organic thing that's where the institution has just kind of moved in that direction i have been encouraging the getty to be as as ambitious as possible on things digital and the whole range of digital aspects of of our work so it's everything from building deep rich databases or putting our intellectual cultural assets online or building research platforms or being active 
uh, and, and deepening our website with information or being very active on social media. But when it comes down to, to podcasts, I, I'm just very sort of selfish about it. I, I like talking to people and I like talking to interesting people. And, and I figure, well, if I like talking to interesting people, I bet you other people would like to hear me talk about it with interesting people as if they were in, in the same room with the same, in the midst of the same conversation. So it's really just what interests me. I mean, I, I found the great advantage of working uh, with a bunch of interesting, smart people is I get to learn from them all the time. And I may as well share that uh, learning experience with others. Are there things from your pre-directorial background that uh, mental muscles, if you will, that, that you're getting to stretch now that you don't get to, to stretch when you're in the corner office? <laughs> I'm not sure about that. I, I find myself in situations, and I have for many, many years found myself in situations where I'm engaging with people I don't know, you know, at dinner conversations or exhibition openings or whatever it might be. And the process, one of the, in the process of that engagement, I find myself asking people lots of questions. And people tend to talk to you and they tend, tend to say interesting things. So if you can get someone, if you can curate the people, that is, if you can pick the people you really want to talk about rather than someone else putting you next to someone at dinner, then you can probably come up with interesting things just because they themselves are so interesting. Do you think of this more as something you're doing or as something that the Getty is doing? Well, it's the Getty because it is through the Getty that I come in contact with these people or these people often work at the Getty and they work at the Getty uh, on materials that are in the Getty collections, meaning in the archives, for example, we have a podcast that's still being produced, but nevertheless on the David Tudor archive in the Getty Research Institute, or we have an a podcast also that's getting produced in which a, the head of the Getty Research Institute, Thomas Kakins, and I are talking with an author of a new book on Andre Malraux. And, uh, then, and, and then I'm doing a podcast uh, taping later today with uh, two conservators and two research, researchers at the Getty Research Institute on an exhibition we're doing on um, mid-20th century geometric abstraction in Latin America. And so, so there's just lots of interesting people around, and they come to the Getty because they Tim Clark was here as a Getty scholar, or because they're passing through the Getty. So I couldn't do this without the Getty, and it's a way to amplify in yet one more dimension the uh, richness of the Getty. You mentioned Tim Clark, also known professionally as T.J. Clark. You taped a show with him about Poussin, and you taped it in the Getty galleries. For those of us who 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 do a, a weekly audio show, that's a fairly extraordinary thing. If I want to tape at the Met with an artist, the number of hoops I have to jump through are, are prohibitive, although I guess we did it once, but that was with the curator. What do you get out of having a conversation with somebody like TJ Clark in a gallery that you can't have conversing with him in front of a computer screen about a painting? Well, first of all, I should admit that Tim was a teacher of mine in graduate school, and I've never come across anyone who's been more passionate and analytical and articulate about looking at works of art than Tim. I was interested in talking with him now because 10 years ago, he published a book on Poussin, and one of the pictures that he was, and what prompted the book that he wrote was the pairing of two paintings, one of which was ours, and I wanted to revisit that book 10 years later because it was called an, an experiment in art writing. The sight of death, an experiment in art writing, yeah. Yeah, exactly. I wanted to know about the experiment aspect of this things and whether the experiment turned out to be of value. And so I wanted him to reflect on that because it was controversial. He, first of all, is a, 
by training a modernist art historian, as you know, and not a 17th century uh, art historian. But, and so he was tiptoeing into waters that are occupied by a lot of sharks, shall we say. And he was an outsider. So I wanted him to do that. But I really wanted the people to hear the way he thinks and looks at works of art. So it was a great opportunity to do it. And he was here as a scholar. And we had a couple of hours together in the, in the, stu- in the, in the galleries just looking at this painting and at an image of its pair, uh, not its pair, but the other painting that prompted his thinking about Poussin. What was really great about that conversation, and of course we'll have a link to it uh, on manpodcast.com and to the book, is that he was able to speed past dogma on 17th century painting, and because y'all were in front of the paintings, you were practically discussing individual brush, brush strokes and finding ways to engage with very specific marks on the canvas, which was which was really great. Finally, are there benefits to an institution such as the Getty to having the person at the top of the organizational chart be the face, or in this case, the voice of the institution? I mean, that's something that, say, the generation of uh, museum directors, to use a relevant but not exactly uh, immediate term, does didn't do. I mean, Rusty Powell is never the voice of the National Gallery, but you and Michael Govan and Glenn Lowry often are of your institutions. You often interview artists and scholars in front of audiences in a way that I can't ever remember, say, Rusty Powell doing. Is there is there a reason for that or a, or a benefit you see to that? Well, I, I guess it's only to suggest to the public that's listening, however large the public might be, or who's in a in a gallery at the time, or in a in an auditorium when the conversation is occurring, that this kind of intellectual activity is of interest at every level of the Getty, every level of the institution, uh, so that it's not something that one distributes to an uh, one part of the staff of the Getty. It's everybody's curious. Everybody's got. Everybody's committed to the same enterprise, which is an enterprise engaging with the presentation and conservation and interpretation of works of art. And the person who's uh, in the corner office, as you say, ought to, ought to be equally engaged with it because we're all, in, we're all involved in advancing the institution on these terms. So it's, it's probably that, but I don't even really think about it that much. I'm just a curious guy who likes to talk to interesting people and here's a chance to do it. So I'm having a blast. It's a lot of fun. Jim Cuno, thanks for talking with me. Yeah, thank you, Tyler. Thanks a lot. After a major three-year expansion, the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art returns as the largest art museum in the U.S. dedicated to modern and contemporary art. New exhibitions include works from the Doris and Donald Fisher collection, with dedicated galleries spanning the careers of Andy Warhol, Alexander Calder, Agnes Martin, Chuck Close, Gerhard Richter, and many more. Experience the new SF MoMA, where kids 18 and under always get in free. To book tickets and for more information, visit sfmoma.org. The Hammer Museum in Los Angeles presents Made in L.A. 2016, a, the, though, only. The third biennial of artists working throughout Los Angeles. Organized by Hammer curator Aram Moshayeti and the Renaissance Society's Hamza Walker, Made in L.A. 2016 features the work of 26 artists. Occupying the entire Hammer Museum, the exhibition includes condensed monographic surveys, comprehensive displays of multi-year projects, the premiere of new bodies of work and newly commissioned works from emerging artists. Find details at hammer.ucla.edu. Made in L.A. 2016, 
a, the, though, only. On view June 12th through August 28th at the Hammer Museum. Robert Irwin, All the Rules Will Change, is on view now at the Hirshhorn in Washington, D.C. The first U.S. museum survey outside California in nearly 40 years, the exhibition explores Irwin's work in the pivotal decade of the 1960s and culminates in an immersive new installation created in response to the Hirshhorn's unique architecture. Get more information at hirshhorn.si.edu and explore the limits of perception with a modern master. We're back. Brian Alford, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thanks for having me. You're a painter. Uh, you teach. What do you get out of talking with people on tape? I get a lot out of talking with people on tape. I, I think outside of normal conversations that I have with artists when I'm in the studio, when the tape's rolling or when I'm you know, talking to them on the podcast, maybe I dig a little deeper into some some lines of thought in their work or you know, ideas that I have about things or they have about things and just kind of explore subjects a little deeper maybe than I would in a casual conversation. And then I, I definitely cover more bases, you know, in one sitting with an artist where we, we talk about, you know, I'm trying to squeeze in everything that I can get out of that conversation. So, so your show almost always sounds like the best kind of just sitting around over a glass of scotch conversation between, between a couple of artists. Does, Having a microphone around and tape rolling give you permission to ask things or raise questions or get into, I don't know, personal specifics in a way that you wouldn't have an opportunity to do if there wasn't a microphone there? I suppose so. I'd like to think that the conversation is, you know, the subjects that I bring up or the things that we talk about are things that I would anyways. And I like to, I mean, for me, it's easy because I've been doing this now for a little while and I have a little bit of a history being in front of the microphone on radio, but I can see it in the people that I talk to that those who are uncomfortable with speaking on, micro, on the microphone, it kind of drops off after the first couple of minutes and they just, I really want them to forget and myself to forget about the fact that we're recording and just be there talking. You know, and hopefully if there's one thing that I'm good at, the fact that I'm doing the same thing they're doing, I'm a fellow artist, that I can disarm them and we can just talk casually. And, and hopefully that comes across in the podcast. How do you pick who you have on? Are they always people you know? Well, it started with people that I know. Some people that are, you know, people whose work I've been fond of or I'm interested in, but I've never met them. Some are recommended to me by friends who, oh, you should talk to this person. They're great to, to speak with, but I haven't necessarily, I haven't met them, but I, I'm familiar with their work. So it's, it's pretty varied in that sense. I think, uh, you know, the, the natural inclination is to just speak to the people you know really, really well at the beginning. And that's kind of how it started. So, but I, I keep it open. And, and fortunately, lately, I've been speaking to a, a more people that, I'm, that I don't know. And that's, that's exciting to me, to just meet someone, walk in, shake their hand, look at their work in the studio, and then just start talking. You do something I'm pretty jealous of. You do a much looser show than we do, and you, and you get to talk to artists more about their lives off the canvas. You allow for a kind of biographical narrative to develop over the course of a show that I think is really valuable, especially to other artists. Do you 
think about or intend for other artists to be the audience? Is that who you think you're, you're back and forthing to? I think so. I mean, it's funny. As far as the audience is concerned, uh, I would imagine that students would like to hear you know, some of these conversations. And I think, of course, fellow artists and the friends of those artists. So if I'm, you know, interviewing this person, like all their friends and all the people they know, their family and their friends would obviously be interested in hearing that and maybe be getting some nuggets that they didn't know about, you know. And at the same time, I feel like the artist story, like we're interesting people. We have varied interests and a lot of different things going on in our life. And our only real opportunity to present ourselves in our career is usually giving lectures or talking about the work, which is for some reason a really stiff, rigid format that for as far as I've been in school, it's been kind of the same deal. Like you show up, you have a group of images, you kind of talk about them, you field a couple questions and it's over. Where, you know, having a history and playing live music, I feel like I like more of a dialogue. I want it to be a little less rigid. And I, I think it's valuable to understand people on a, in a deeper level. And for artists, it just doesn't really seem to be there. you know. So hopefully I'm filling a little bit of a gap with the podcast of where people can get to know these artists, what's ticking in their minds and what's driving them, what their day-to-day is like, you know, something deeper than just, you know, here's the last show I did, this is what I was thinking about, et cetera. When, when we started ours four or five years ago, I remember thinking that the slide lecture has become such an academic conceit, such a formulaic academic procession that doesn't have really its own narrative. It just has the next button. And I remember thinking that it was something to be killed. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, how many lectures I've been in not just not giving them, but also, you know, watching people lecture and seeing how many heads in the crowd are like slightly nodding off, you know, because you may be a great artist, your work may be great, but in, you know, a slide projector or, you know, a digital projector format up on the wall, the lights dimmed after 20 minutes, unless you had that, you know, double espresso beforehand, it can get pretty, you know, sleepy. So, I mean, that's why in my own lecture, I'm fortunate enough that a large part of my work is digital. I do animation and I work with music. So I incorporate that into my talks because I feel like it's just more entertaining. I mean, it's more interesting. It keeps you on your toes a little bit more and it's it's a little less conventional than the, uh, you know, the 20 images. Let me give you the history of my life through my 20 paintings, you know. You mentioned your your work in the studio. Does it, Do you find that you carry anything from the show, from the conversations you have into your own studio? Does anything come from the conversations on tape into how you either look at art or make it? Well, I'll say this. I, I don't think so at all, because, and I completely do. <laughs> <laughs> because I think everything in my life goes into the studio, but not directly. You know, it's kind of like everything that I see, everything that I experience becomes part of you know, the way I think and see and reflect in the studio. So not overtly, you know, I think with just shared experience, it's like I play soccer and I play a lot and it's a big part of my life. I don't think it comes into my studio really, but I do in a way because it keeps me, you know, fit and it keeps me feeling good. And then when I go into the studio, I have more energy. So, you know what I mean? So I think the podcast 
overall for me is enriching in my life. And it's been a really positive experience for me. And I'm hoping that people get that out of it as well. And so I, I think it, I think it does help and it does come into my studio, but not in an overt kind of, you know, we were talking about the Fovis today and then I'm going to add a little more pink and, you know, light green to my work. We've been talking about artists, but you also have musicians on the show. Every artist studio I've ever walked into in my life, more or less, artists have had to turn off the music before they turn and say hello to me. Is that why you wanted to include musicians? Because it's just part of the daily practice of the way you live and work? Or was there another reason? I think so. I mean, it's slightly selfish in a way because music is such a big part of my life. And in my work, I use I collaborate with musicians in my animations and I've and I make my own music. So I think it's selfish in that sense. But it, in the same light, I do notice I I talk to a lot of different artists about music a lot of friends who are musicians and they are all very interested in art they all make music videos they all make cover art for their records and you know they're indebted to art and in the same way that you know the artists are listening to music to give them fuel in the studio so i think it's you know it's just something that i felt you know this podcast is partially my voice it's partially something that i can bring to the conversation music is something that i've always had in my life and has been really significant for me it's easy for me to talk about it and i think it it weighs on my work and weighs in my life so uh, for me that was really the interest is to sort of not only talk about the parallels between the creative process of artists and musicians and how they bleed over, but also just, you know, it's a comfortable thing to, to talk about. And I think a shared interest. And finally, do you think about your show, each individual show having a life years in the future, whether it's for art historians or people looking into your own oeuvre someday, do you think about them living on and being useful to others later? Um, I do, to be honest, I think, not so much for me or what I'm saying, but I, I would like to think that a lot of the artists that I'm speaking with are very talented. I mean, I think they're all talented, but I, I think that people down the line might dig back and pull up an episode with artist A, who they really like, and say, oh, wow, this is a, you know, a conversation that's totally different than, you know, hearing them lecture or whatever that would be really interesting for them to listen to. And I think... There's two sort of precedents to that for me personally is one is in music. I love to dig back into the history of music, world music all over. And when I can go back, like recently, I just saw someone posted on Facebook a video of Grant Green playing uh, live. And I don't think I'd ever seen any footage of Grant Green playing uh, live, you know, or, or not live, but, you know, in a live setting. And uh, it's really interesting the way he was playing and I, I just loved it, you know, and that's come out how many years later. And so I think finding things like that down the line, I think would be interesting. I also went to Skowhegan and Skowhegan had a library of collected lecture recordings that when you go there, you can go back in time and listen to all these presentations that people gave. And that was really amazing to listen to whenever I was, you know, in that studio in the middle of the woods at like one in the morning, you know, and the middle of nowhere in Maine. It's such an amazing experience to like share that, that lecture that was happening, you know, 10 years, whatever it was beforehand. So I would like to think that, you know, down the line, people could, you know, dig into these and, and maybe f get something out of it. 
I love that. And I'm grateful for it because as somebody who spends a lot of time working on 19th century art and artists, and then later in that same day, same day talks to living artists quite often, I think, I think that, wow, if only different resources were available to me. <laughs> <laughs> Brian Alford, thanks so much for talking with me. No, thanks for having me. The National Museum of Art at Duke University presents Southern Accent, Seeking the American South in Contemporary Art, an exhibition that questions and explores the complex and contested space of the American South. This unprecedented exhibition takes on Southern identity as an open-ended question and reframes the way we look at the South in contemporary art. Southern Accent encompasses a broad spectrum of media and approaches from both within and outside the region demonstrating that Southerness is more of a shared sensibility than a consistent culture. Southern Accent includes work by 60 artists focusing on contemporary work from the past 30 years. It includes earlier work dating back to the 1950s as important foundational and historical markers. Opening September 1st at the Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina. Visit nasher.duke.edu. And we're back. Eric Marth, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Hey, Tyler. Thanks for having me on. So the halftone is obviously about photography. It follows the, the semi-timeless podcast naming format of naming a podcast after some detail embedded within the thing. Who do you have on the show and why do you invite them? I like to talk to other photographers. I like to talk to people who are involved in bookmaking, be them publishers or printers. And a few of my recent guests are the photographer Brian Scutnot, uh, photographer Alex Soth. I've also talked with, and it's yet to, to air, but publisher Paul Sheik from TBW Books and a couple of photo offset printers like Robert Hennessy and Thomas Palmer. So to answer your question, white guys. <laughs> well, you had Sandy <laughs> so Phillips, the longtime SF I've had Sandy Phillips on, yeah. Legendary, wonderful, super knowledgeable Sandra Phillips at the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art, who was a real pleasure to talk to. You mentioned Brian Scutmott. He recently came up when Robert Adams was on our show. Listeners may may remember that. We'll have a link to that on manpodcast.com. You're a photographer. Do the photographers that interest you and the photographers you invite onto the show have something or anything to do with your work? Well, let's see. Uh, Brian's an example of a guy who... I met through a mutual friend and who, you know, I'd spent a lot of time with that guy before we ever met up to record a conversation. He was a guy whose work I really admire and a guy I like to hang out with, really, who I thought would make a great guest because we get along so well. But the other people that I've talked to, I've sort of sought out for one reason or another, not so much that they inform my work directly, but that I admire what they do quite a bit. And I think that's true of everybody that I've talked to so far. Palmer and Hennessy are guys who I kind of became aware of. And John Goodman, too, due to my interest in the printer and teacher photographer Richard Benson. And they all kind of came out of Benson's teaching and his work in printing. And uh, printing is something that I'm really interested in. And the the ability of these guys to translate photographers' work into books, which is, you know, how I've come to photography, and a lot of people have come to photography is really 
been important to me. And yeah, I guess it has impacted what I do as a photographer. So I was excited to meet them and, and to see a bit of what they do and, and talk to them about their great printing careers. Once upon a time, artists used to write reviews of other artists' work and publish them in New York art magazines. Is having a podcast and interviewing artists on that podcast kind of the new version of that? I don't know if any examples of that come to mind for me, Tyler, as, as even a reference point. That might be a hole in my photography knowledge. As a way, I guess that what I'm interested in is not so much taking the the pictures apart or maybe the meaning in the work, but you might have noticed, you know, listening in that I'm kind of a nuts and bolts guy. You know, I like the stories about people and how they've kind of made one step to the next doing what they do or stories about camping and sleeping by the side of the road, getting up early to make pictures, you know, and, and things going wrong when they do. Well, I'm kind of nuts and bolts more than uh, analytical, I think. Yeah, you do a great job of getting people to talk about things like career development and professional paths and paths taken and paths not taken and why choices were made and how things worked out the way they worked out more so than than you know any of the other guests on this week's show. Any guesses as to why that angle interests you? Oh, it's because I'm a young guy and uh, I make pictures, but I've never you know been hired to do a job or sold a print. <laughs> I love this thing that I do. So when I talk to other people, I want to know like how how the hell do you do this? So I'm very interested to know. And I I skipped grad school. You know, I didn't do the grad school deal. I'm more or less self-taught though. I learned a lot from these people that I talked to. It, it's been an interesting and a uh, wonderful way to learn from people, even though I've only been doing it for about a year now. But it seems like if I continue on, and I sure plan to, that it will be a very unique kind of education for me to go after people who I have specific interest in and kind of draw things out of them. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm definitely interested in, in how all of these things work with people, and especially when they've had a career that's 20, 30, 40 years long, you know, uh, longer than I've been around in some cases. Do you think of the show existing in the distant future as a useful archive? I'd like to think so, especially if I continue to go after people that I know a lot of people are interested in. And when I started doing this, I've noticed that there are a few other photography podcasts. There's the Photo Show, which is great. There's another photo podcast called the LPV Show that's run by a good friend of mine named Tom Starkweather. But when I started out, I didn't know about those shows. So I thought, you know, where's where are these interviews to me to go and look for them and listen to them didn't exist. So I thought that I could try to make them myself. Do you think artists speak differently to you knowing that you make pictures than they would to someone like me who, you know, who has an iPhone? <laughs> I'm not sure if everybody I've had on knows even that I'm a photographer. I've been kind of ridiculously shy about my own work when talking to these people, even after or before an interview. I try to keep the focus on whoever it is that I'm visiting with. But somebody like Brian, I guess, would be, he's such a unique example because he's a buddy of mine. And, you know, when you talk to your buddy, even with a microphone, he's still your buddy on the other side of the table. Of course, if anybody who's come on your show has Googled you, which, you know, surely they have, all of the stuff that pops right up is related to your work. 
So they must know. Well, I'm not trying to hide. I'm not trying to hide it, but I guess I don't usually. Sometimes I don't offer it up in an email that I'm a photographer, but rather that I'm interested in in photography and have been talking to the people I've been talking to. It is kind of surprising, and and, and was to me when we started this show that there aren't as many places for artists to sit and talk at length about what they do and why as one would seemingly expect in a digital landscape wherein the cost of creating media is relatively low. Yeah, and it seems, I'm not sure if you would agree, but over the past year or so that more and more of these things start to show themselves and are popping up. I think it's great. And if I can't talk to somebody myself, I'm always interested to hear somebody else do it. And maybe the best example I can think of are your two talks with Robert Adams, which still, I mean, just thinking about them right now, got to say the hair on the neck standing up a little bit. I'm a big admirer of Robert Adams, and you did a really beautiful job chatting with him for a couple of hours. And he's not a guy that talks very well. Thanks, but he's so good that yeah. you just, <laughs> you know, let him go and I you just get out of the way. Right. But he doesn't talk to a whole lot of people. And they're, you know, for all the interviews that I've sort of been able to find on YouTube or, or read wherever they may be, there's nothing like two hours of one-on-one -on -one conversation. That's just, just the best. Yeah, no, I, I, I get to do a very lucky thing. I, I, and and those, two, those two are two of my favorite shows of all time. We've done 250 or something shows now, and I don't really get nervous before talking to people anymore especially because I know editing masks all flaws. But, but yeah, those two I was, you know, awake the night before for. So, yes, I, I, yeah. So of the shows you've done, what are your favorite or favorites and why? The one that comes to mind is Doug Dubois, I think. And that was a favorite because I think for me it was a, a sort of success because the whole format of the podcast kind of fell away. And we were two guys sitting in a study at a bed and breakfast and having to talk about photography. It was really exciting. He said a lot of things about his career and his work that I really didn't know about. And it was just a hell of a lot of fun. That's one that I like to point people to when they're looking to kind of dive in, friends of mine and family. It was just great fun. I'm also excited to talk to people who I've admired for a long time, but I've, who, who I've never met or, or really had the chance to talk to, like Sandra Phillips and Alex Oath, and get a, a bit of time with, with people like that. And that's another sort of great, exciting thing, because I'm a guy down in Fredericksburg, Virginia, not close to a whole lot of art, you know, real, really in, in where I am. And I skipped the, you know, the, the graduate school thing where you had the chance to be with like-minded people for a couple of years and have artists, you know, on faculty or visiting. And it's nice for me to, to engage with these people. So, I mean, really, I think they've all been, for me, terribly exciting. I don't think I've had a, a single one I've walked away from and said, oh, man, that didn't go so well. I'm just excited to, to talk with these other photographers and, and see what they have to say. It's been a blast, really. So uh, I hope listeners subscribe. We'll have links to your show on many different platforms on manpodcast.com. We'll have links to our other guests' shows on many different platforms, on, on all, all from the, the show page on manpodcast.com. But who's coming up? To whom should people be looking forward? Let's see. We've got, I guess I'll only 
spoil you on two. We've got, I kind of like to hold things close to my chest. But, yeah, I, uh, I do too. Coming up tomorrow, and I guess this will be after the fact for whoever's listening. Up up next, we have a great interior photographer named Leslie Williamson, who's done two absolutely beautiful books with Rizzoli. She likes to focus on mid-century modernist designers, furniture makers, and sculptors, and she goes and photographs their homes to see kind of how they live. So our talk is going to be posted up next. And after that, we've got Paul Sheik, who runs TBW Books out of Oakland, California, and publishes great stuff by photographers like Christian Patterson, Wolfgang Tillman, Todd Heido, Alex Oates, and lots and lots of others. Cool. I can't wait. Eric Marth, thanks so much for talking with me. Hey, Tyler. Thanks a lot. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.